tension. Coal miners in one community, they've been on strike now for months. Working as long as 12 hours a day, seven days a week, in some of the most dangerous conditions. I really think that the labor movement is the single greatest force for democracy in the history of the United States. The story of Alabama is a story of not just resilience, but of militancy. I If we ain't all free, ain't none of us free. You're listening to Alabama's only union talk radio show, The Valley Labor Report, with Adam Keller and Jacob Morrison. All right, good morning, y'all. Please let me know if you can hear me. Sorry about some technical issues this morning. This is uh, Adam's solo project, which means Adam is in the studio by himself doing his best to make this happen. Uh, So if you are in the chat, please uh, let me know if you can hear me talking right now. Awesome. Appreciate that. I can't hear anything through my headphones, so I'm about to take the headphones off. I apologize again for the delay and for the issues this morning. Uh, So let me get going on our introduction since you guys missed that and we'll get right into it. All right. So welcome to the Valley Labor Report. My name is Adam Keller and this is Shot Talk. Our new Thursday morning episode will be bringing every week with a focus on labor education, history and training. It's Thursday, March 9th, and we're broadcasting live from the Spice Radio studio in the heart of Huntsville, Alabama. Every episode is live streamed on YouTube and in the following days is released on your favorite podcasting platform. In the future, we will also be on Facebook. Today on the show, we're introducing the series. We will do some local labor history and take a look at the historic but underreported educator strike from 1979 in Walker County, Alabama. And we'll wrap up with this month in labor and social justice anniversaries. Just a reminder that the Valley Labor Report is a working class media collective dedicated to lifting up labor struggles throughout Alabama and across the South. We bring you Alabama's only union talk radio show every Saturday morning with the first half from 9.30 to 11 a.m. live on FM radio through WVNN here in the Huntsville listening area. The entire program is online via Facebook, YouTube, and podcast and portions of the program are replayed on WZZA in the Shoals and WHIV out of New Orleans. We encourage you to check out our website, tvlr.fm, which we're currently expanding to feature regularly published articles, including news and commentary relevant to working people. You can check out our merch at tvlr.fm slash store, We currently have a few more days left to pre-order our new shirt. That's really cool. You don't want to miss out on that shirt. I'd love to show you the shirt, uh, but I'm scared to press any more buttons at this point. So uh, definitely go to tvlr.fm slash store to check that out. And finally, we rely on donations and sponsorships to do all of this. We appreciate the local unions and organizations that have sponsored ads and our single biggest source of contributions comes from listener donations. You can make a one-time donation or a recurring contribution at tvlr.fm slash donate. We also have a Patreon if you prefer to donate that way, and we'll even take a good old-fashioned check mailed out to our P.O. box. 
Whether you donate, share, subscribe, or just listen, we appreciate your support, and we can't do it without you. So, welcome again. This is the very first episode of Shop Talk. And first things first, as you may have heard or noticed, this is a solo project by me, Adam Keller. I'm in the studio by my lonesome, so apologies up front for any future technical issues we run into. We've already had a few this morning, uh, but that comes with the territory. So the Valley Labor Report has been around for about three years now as Alabama's only union talk radio show. During that time, we've grown and evolved. We've added Overtime, which is another full episode that is online immediately, online only. Uh, it airs immediately after the main show, which, as I mentioned, airs live on FM via WVNN, which is the conservative talk radio station in Athens-Huntsville area. We've had op-eds published in outlets like AO.com and Alabama Political Reporter. We've also been featured in outlets like Labor Notes, The Real News Network, Jacobin, and In These Times. As part of our spring expansion campaign, we're upgrading our website, and we started writing and publishing articles and additional written content. Uh, and we're adding this series, Shop Talk, to provide content ta specifically tailored to labor education, history, and training. So, Shop Talk will air every Thursday morning. Uh, we started around, well, we, we planned to start at 1030 uh, a.m. Central Time this morning. I can't say for certain that will be the permanent time. I wanted to give myself a little extra this morning to work out some kinks. Even that wasn't enough, obviously, but uh, so we'll we'll determine the exact time every week. Uh, do plan on having it at a regular time, just as our Saturday show. And while this is a solo project, it's not just going to be me talking at you every week. Uh, that would not be fun for me, are you? Uh, we're going to have in historians, writers, lawyers, activists, stewards, any other guests that are relevant to our audience and the mission of the show. Each month, I'll highlight a history topic, particularly from the local area, and also highlight the important labor and social justice anniversaries for the month. That's something I've already been doing for the main show. We're going to swap that over to Shop Talk. At least once a month, we hope to have on at least one historian who can take, take us deeper with some interesting labor history. And at least one episode a month, will be educational in the training sense, sharing skills and knowledge to hopefully help you be a better advocate for yourself and for your coworkers. Topics like, you know, what is an EEOC charge and how do you file one? What are the best practices of a shop steward? And learning the legislative process in Alabama. Those are the types of things we're gonna explore with those episodes. So we hope that each month there's going to be content that union leaders and reps can share with their membership, as well as content that's interesting to those with a passion for labor history, especially as it relates to Alabama and the South. As always, if you have questions, ideas, suggestions, please send them our way. We love listener feedback, and you know ultimately, that's why we do what we do. Um, me personally, I'm excited about this new show. I really hope folks will get something out of it. Uh, if you'd like a, a more 
full introduction of who I am. Uh, we recently recorded a couple of Dover, double overtime episodes for the Valley Labor Report, one of which I interviewed Jacob about his life and background, and one of which uh, Jacob interviewed me about my background. So you can check that out if you want to know more about who I am, especially if you're a, a new listener and you're not really familiar. But long story short, I am a union member. I am a dedicated unionist. I believe very strongly in the power of the, the labor movement to build a better community and a better country. And currently, I work as a union stagehand with IATSE 900 here in Huntsville. Happy to serve in my local as a political coordinator and, and other capacities. I previously served as a public high school history teacher. And I spent over five years working for the Alabama Education Association as the labor representative for Huntsville City Schools employees. And throughout that time, I've been involved in various uh, you know, political organizations and, and other community groups. So I've been around in local politics and labor politics for about a decade now, and I'm really happy to you know, have an outlet uh, to share these passions. And so I really appreciate the Valley Labor Report for providing that. And uh, last thing I'll say before we get into the meat of the show is while, again, this is, you know, a solo project, I couldn't do it without the help of the entire Valley Labor Report crew. So thank you to Ben Job. Ben uh, runs Spice Radio Studio, which is where I'm broadcasting from. He's also our de facto tech guy. We couldn't do it without him. Uh, Spencer is our audio expert. And so he will be taking this audio, cleaning it up, and releasing it as a podcast uh, in the next couple of days. So really appreciate the work that Spencer does. And of course, Jacob. Jacob, our fearless leader, Jacob Morrison. Uh, couldn't do the show without him, of course. And uh, happy he is supportive of this project and believes in this project and um, looking forward to many, many great things ahead. So, with all of that out of the way, I do want to talk about the 1979 educator strike in Walker County, Alabama. If you give me just about 15 seconds, I'm going to pull up my notes and we're going to get started. All right, folks, I'm back. Took the headphones off since I can't hear anything out of them anyway. Uh, so, if Again, there are any issues, just uh, let me know in the chat. I'll be trying to monitor the chat uh, as I do this and try to keep an eye on things. So I uh, appreciate all of you who are listening live. And of course, all of you will be listening later through podcast. In the fall of 1979, in districts and states across the country, school did not open on schedule. A wave of strikes among educators and school support staff didn't just hit big cities and union strongholds, it rippled all the way down to coal country in rural Alabama. In Walker County schools, teachers and other school employees united to win a month-long strike that, involved, that would involve a supposed financial crisis, bank protests, solidarity from the UMWA coal miners, and intervention by local coal barons. First, let's put things in context. 2009 was the first year there were more public sector union members than private sector members in the U.S. 
We've seen many attempts since then to diminish the union strongholds within the public sector, and these public sector strongholds are a key component of what's left of the American labor movement. But it wasn't always that way. While postal workers paved the way decades earlier, public sector unionization, particularly in education, didn't really hit its stride until the 60s and the 70s. Teachers first secured collective bargaining rights in 1959 in Wisconsin, which many of you will know would also be home to a monumental push to crush public sector unions 50 years later under the right-wing Governor Walker. In Alabama, political leadership has long tried to stop unionization and the interracial people power it creates. Educators here never secured the legal right to strike or collectively bargain contracts. That said, the organizing push did have its successes even in conservative Alabama. The largest education association or organization was the Alabama Education Association, AEA. While an affiliate of the NEA, the nation's largest teachers union, AEA has always resisted unionism, and to some extent, the NEA, for that matter. Starting as a professional organization for superintendents and administrators way on back in 1856, it never really let go of that heritage, and even to this day, bosses can be members of the AEA. But the organization took a more modern shape in 1969 with the successful merger of the all-white AEA with the all-black Alabama State Teachers Association, ASTA. Because yes, like our schools, even the teacher organizations have been segregated. Perhaps surprising given Alabama's resistance to integration and civil rights, the NEA's merger of AEA and ASTA was probably the most successful one in the South. It was a few years later when support staff would also be allowed to join AEA. And by support staff, I'm talking custodians, bus drivers, cafeteria workers, clerical staff, other folks who are not certified educators like counselors, librarians, and of course classroom teachers. By the time of 1979, when the strike occurred in Walker County, the AEA was still early in its development and arguably at the height of its militancy and power with an integrated membership and political machine that successfully fought back the powerful Governor Wallace's attempted raid of the pension fund earlier in the decade. And there's also a national context. 1979 itself was a major year for labor action, particularly in education. An Associated Press article from September 5th reported delays to school openings across 11 states involving some 20,000 teachers on strike. You had union strongholds like Michigan and New Jersey, but also western states like Oregon and southern states like Louisiana and, of course, Alabama. And things got ugly in some places. Again, from the September 5th AP article, quote, In Oklahoma City, a decision by a three-judge district court panel preventing the local school board from negotiating with an American Federation of Teachers local union kept both sides apart. The court said the federation had lost its right to represent teachers because it had conducted an illegal strike. Teachers are feeling very unsupported and imperiled, both economically and physically, 
said Susan Lowell of the National Education Association from the same article. Indeed, a Washington Post article from earlier in the year on March 15th titled Teacher's Strike Issue is Different, It's Power, Not Money, described struggles in Washington, D.C. schools, reporting, quote, The issue at the negotiating table has been one of power. What degree of the school board's authority over curriculum, discipline, grading, and other educational policymaking should it share with the teachers and their union? While obviously there were some unique factors involved in the nation's capital, these power struggles were reflected to various degrees in teacher strikes across the country, including today's topic. And as we wrap up the context before digging into the strike itself, it's worth identifying the location. Walker County is a fairy, fairly rural county in the northern half of Alabama, located deep in coal country and neighboring Tuscaloosa and Jefferson counties. Listeners may know of Walker County because of the historic UMWA strike against Warrior Matt Cole in nearby Brookwood. In fact, the county has a long history of labor struggle, particularly in the coal industry. Walker County saw at least 16 workers killed by authorities in the historic 1920 statewide coal strike by UMWA. The county seat is Jasper, with under 15,000 folks. According to the 1980 census, just under 69,000 folks lived in the county, which is actually a few thousand more than live there now, according to recent census data. The county is predominantly white, though it has increasingly diversified in recent years. Currently, over 16% of the county is below the poverty line, and the county has been particularly hard hit by drug addiction and the opioid epidemic in particular. And while this is totally anecdotal, everyone I've met from Walker County is tough as nails. Thought I should throw that in there. Lastly, I'm calling this an introduction as opposed to a deep dive because of the sources available. Despite being what I think was the first teacher strike in Alabama, Despite its, nat despite its connection to the national context that I just mentioned, this is a very underdocumented event. I could find very few sources to work from. Uh, very little luck on JSTOR. I didn't see any of the Jasper newspapers and the newspaper archives I was searching. Basically, there's just not a lot out there as far as I can tell. My goal in the next two years, whether that's through the Valley Labor Report, my graduate studies, ours, some combination, is to add to the historical record of this event, to uncover some more primary sources, to check out archives down in Walker County, and hopefully even be able to interview some folks who were there. In the meantime, the main source I have available is from AEA, Head of the Class in Alabama Politics, a history of the Alabama Education Association, written by Don Eddins, and published by AEA back in 1997. The book is since out of print. Much of the narrative of the story will come from there. But of course, as the AEA's officially sanctioned history written by an AEA staffer, it obviously has a bias, and no doubt paints the association and its leadership in the best possible light possible. 
all the more reason for additional research, and, you know, perhaps this segment will inspire more. So I'm going to turn now to Eden's work and take a look at the story that he paints, uh, which starts actually with the fall, September of 1979. Late September is a refreshing time in Walker County. A gentle autumn breeze blows through the northeast Alabama hills while parents, teachers, and students settle into a new school year and can contemplate Friday evening's high school football matchups. But in 1979, parents had no reason to admonish their children about grades, and once or twice, the unthinkable even happened. There was no football on Friday evening. Walker County teachers went out on strike, shocking the community, even though it was accustomed to work stoppages and union activities at local coal mines. <laughs> Still, a school strike was unheard of in Alabama, and it didn't sit too well with the city fathers in Jasper, the county seat. Several days into the work stoppage, Shelton Prince, respected publisher of the Daily Mountain Eagle at Jasper and unofficial ambassador for the city, called in Paul Hubbard, AEA's 43-year-old executive secretary at the time, to give Hubbard a piece of his mind. <laughs> You need to go on back to Montgomery, Prince cautioned, before somebody gets hurt. Hubbard was nervous about the strike himself. He worried for striking teachers' jobs, and a circuit judge was even talking of locking up picketing school employees. After ten years on the job, Hubbard was a seasoned labor chief, but a teacher strike was something he had not been through. He knew enough about work stoppages, though, to know better than to show signs of weakness. <laughs> We've tried to keep the United Mine Worker husbands out of this, Hubbard shot back. But if you lock up the ones who cook their breakfast and tend to their needs, they're going to start raising hell. You better tell Judge Brotherton that if he doesn't want a war up here, y'all better do something. Walker County was Alabama's longest and ugliest teacher strike, lasting about a month and causing deep division in the northeast Alabama County. The strike involved almost 600 teachers and another 150 or so support workers. It shut down 27 schools, giving about 9,800 students an extended summer vacation. In the spring and summer of 1978, the Walker County Education Association, WCEA, and the county school board hammered out a set of personnel policies known locally as the Master Contract. For one thing, the contract established a reduction-in-force layoff policy. School employees enjoyed better working conditions under the new PAC during the 1978-79 school year, but the system's difficult financial system continued to deteriorate. And I'm going to stop through there to point out something, uh, which is that, as I mentioned earlier, Alabama educators did not secure collective bargaining. However, in Alabama state law is a section titled Meet and Confer, and each school board, each school district is required to meet and confer with the representatives of the majority organization among the staff, right? So whatever organization, call it a union, call it an association, whichever entity has a majority represent, uh, representation within the school district, 
the school board must meet and confer with them before they change any policies or uh, add any new policies. And so what you're seeing described there with WCEA and this so-called master contract is them really pushing meet and confer to the limit uh, to see just, you know, how far they could really go with that. Uh, and I think that background is very important, the fact that these negotiations were already underway and the fact that the local had been able to successfully get the board to ratify these policies. Right. So they had a little bit of organizing and success and energy already before things came to a head with this strike in the fall of 79. So I'm continuing here with Eddins. Outgoing Superintendent Joe Cunningham, whose management was blamed for the system's financial woes, sent termination letters to all non-tenured employees in May 1979. When new superintendent John T. Brown took office that summer, he reinstated all of them. Then, before school started, and in apparent violation of the master contract, as well as the State Teacher Tenure Act, Brown sent termination letters to 42 teachers. Brown also laid off three support persons and told school employees who were retained that they were to start work September 13th, but they wouldn't be paid until November 1st. Elementary schools were to feel the greatest impact from the layoffs. Teachers faced self-contained units of 40 or even 50 students. The 569-member WCEA turned to Hubbard and AEA for help. Quote, the class sizes would have been intolerable, so they decided they were not going to take it, recalls Hubbard. They didn't know what was going to happen if they went on strike, but they knew what would happen if they didn't strike. They would be put in classrooms with students who would be stacked like sardines. At the first mass meeting on September 7, 1979, Hubbard asked teachers to divide up by schools and decide whether they wanted to strike and if they were willing to face the potential consequences from a work stoppage. Every delegation reported back in the affirmative. The pickets went up the following Monday. During the three-plus weeks that school employees walked the picket lines, the work stoppage enjoyed overwhelming support from the system's 600 teachers. Only three crossed the picket line toward the end, although about two dozen or so indicated opposition initially. The teacher's cause was buoyed by the Walker County Education Support Professional Organization, WCESBO. ESPO, I'll take an aside here, ESPO is the acronym for the Education Support Personnel or Support Professional Organization, so ESP would be your custodians, cafeteria workers, etc. So, the WCESPO, the ESPO organization in Walker County, involving the bus drivers, janitors, custodians, secretaries, they went out with the teachers organization. So when ESPO went out with the WCEA, the schools were effectively shut down. Still, some weren't so sure. I don't think the community of Jasper knew there was a strike until the Friday when a football game was scheduled at Curry High School, recalls Hubbard. About 30 members of the UMWA showed up to lead the pickets. Some of them brought poles six feet or longer. 
They said nobody was going to any ball game. About 500 people set up roadblocks. The referees couldn't get through. They sat in their car until I finally walked over and told them they could go to the principal's office to get their checks and go on back to Tuscaloosa because the football game wasn't going to be played. We had them driven out to the edge of town to make, sure, make certain they didn't get hurt. When the Oakman High School team arrived, they couldn't get through. The next morning, the people in Jasper knew there was a strike going on. Again, that's Paul Hubbard. Jasper res residents were not overly concerned about the strike because the city had its own school system, as did nearby Carbon Hill. Students were back in school there. Still, Jasper, Walker County's largest city, with a 1980 population of 11,894, became the hub of strike activity. AEA rented the municipal auditorium just about every day. The association set up a strike headquarters and command center. AEA and the local affiliates took out ads in the Daily Mountain Eagle to explain the teacher's position. The AEA staff descended upon the small northeast Alabama city. Help even came from the National Education Association in Washington. Hubbard went around the county, preaching from the back of a flatbed truck. Always the message was couched in terms of school children, not teachers. With classes so large, wouldn't students suffer? While maintaining order over 40 or 50 students, would teachers actually have any time to teach? A September 13th WCEA ad in the Daily Mountain Eagle included an intention-getting strike headline in bold lettering which proclaimed, Fewer teachers will mean overcrowded classes. Our children can't learn. If school personnel have no job protection, good educators will be fired for non-educational reasons. Again, our children will suffer. A full-page ad paid for by the ESPO organization, headline, Grand Jury Finds School Board Poor Manager of Money, summarized a grand jury's finding that the school board, quote, has lived beyond its means, and that the employee terminations would, quote, not come near solving the financial crisis of the Board of Education. Always, school employees left the impression that they were resolute. We have to be determined to see this through, said L.D. Head, WCEA president. We have negotiated in good faith with the board, but it's gotten us nowhere at all. Our problems remain. We still probably won't get paid. They still want to fire 45 of us, and they are still violating our master contract. Brown continued with the theme that the board couldn't, afi couldn't afford to hire the teachers back. And this is the new superintendent installed that summer. <laughs> they want us to put these 42 people back on the payroll. If we put them back, we wouldn't be able to pay anyone, the superintendent told a reporter. It wasn't long before the Walker County Board of Education sought an injunction to have the strike declared illegal and stop the picketing. More on that later. AEA hired former state senator Bob Wilson Sr., who coincidentally had actually castigated AEA during the George Wallace years, to plead its case before Circuit Judge James Brotherton. While the school board was arguing that the strike was illegal, Wilson was countering that the firings were likewise illegal. 
violative of both the master contract at the local level and the Alabama Teacher Tenure Act, which was state law, which also required notification of termination by the end of the school year or the tenured teacher was automatically rehired. Teachers can be laid off because of legitimate loss of revenue, but they cannot be released for personal or political reasons. The Alabama School Journal questioned the motivation for certain dismissals and non-dismissals, saying, Teachers with one, two, and three-year service and who had never been criticized but received only the best evaluations were terminated, while on the other hand, some teachers who had never taught were retained. As one might expect, some interesting relationships can be found. Daughters or daughters-in-law of prominent citizens were retained, while experienced teachers were terminated. The selective layoffs incensed WCEA and WCSPO enough, but adding to the frustration was the fact that the board was asking employees to begin work September 13th, although they would not be paid until November 1st. School had originally been set to open August 27th. Brotherton declared the job action illegal, but he refused to order striking workers back to work. An elected judge in a county with a significant labor vote, Brotherton took the opportunity to express his feelings about an Alabama law which pro prohibits public employee strikes. Quote, Personally, I disagree with the law, he told the media. I have admiration for those who are standing up for their colleagues. Wow, and I just got to say, as an aside, how many judges in 2023 Alabama would be willing to do that or say that? Really a testament to the power of labor in Walker County at the time. Brotherton, Brotherton did order the picket signs down and told school employees to stop marching at the schools. Hubbard promptly ordered on-strike t-shirts, printed, and teachers found innovative ways to sew or write their messages across their clothing. Picketing stopped, but teachers held informal gatherings at schoolhouse entrances. In private meetings, Brotherton let Hubbard know he was not fully amused by the gestures. You stopped them from picketing. You didn't restrain them from wearing clothes, Hubbard joked to the judge. Brotherton brought the two sides together frequently for informal discussions. AEA's team included Hubbard, the chief negotiator, Joelle Reed, AEA associate executive secretary, Head, the WCEA president, and Becky Howell Lee, the WC ESPO president, and for many years thereafter, a stalwart in AEA NEA affairs. Hubbard made it clear that AEA had the resources and WCEA and WC ESPO the resolve to carry the strike to a favorable conclusion. Brotherton wondered aloud where officials could lock up 700 or so picketers. We're not going back to school under the conditions spelled out by the school board, Hubbard told him. We're going to jail. You're going to have to find a place to put us up, to feed us, and to let us go to the bathroom. As the strike wore on into the second and third weeks, both sides were anxious to resolve it. But the matter of the purported $600,000 to $1 million deficit stood in the way. Citing the system's poor financial condition, the First National Bank of Jasper, custodian of the system's monies, refused to help, prompting teachers to picket the bank. The Montgomery Advertiser even reported that the bank would lend the board money only if it sticks with its decision to release 42 teachers and three support workers. 
Nationwide, the Associated Press report. Associated Press reported that 32,890 teachers in more than a dozen states struck to begin the 1979-80 school year, idling 441,000 students. In some states, the governor's office used discretionary funds to get teachers back to work. But Governor Fob James refused to help, a fact that the Alabama School Journal did not allow to go unnoticed. So far... Quoting from the journal, So far, all Governor Fob James has seen fit to do is send Alabama state troopers into Jasper in order that they might stand ready to arrest teachers and support workers at the judge's command. James is currently sitting on some $8.7 million in funds he could use to bail out Walker County schools. Just the word of the state standing behind the system would allow the borrowing of badly needed revenue. But despite the use of troopers, James contends that the issue is local. Yet he did spend several thousand dollars of his quote-unquote war on illiteracy money on a school building in Elmore County. With no financial help in sight, even Hubbard began to worry about ending the work stoppage. In a quiet moment, he turned to Reed, AEA's associate executive secretary, and mused, it's easy to declare war. The question is, how the hell do you get out of it? Hubbard had read about a strike settlement in St. Louis, how community leaders had raised needed capital. Strike organizers decided to hold a parents' meeting and invite the public. Hubbard had read about the settlement in St. Louis, was trying to implement that here in Alabama. Head, who was the WCEA president, had the task of keeping order at the meeting as charges and countercharges were bandied about, as you can imagine. After an hour or so, a tall, burly man walked up to the stage, grabbed the microphone, and all but took over the meeting, declaring that the strike had gone on long enough and he intended to end it. A woman gave the man some choice words, but he continued his lecture. Hubbard, standing at the back lest he be labeled the conspicuous Montgomery outsider, leaned over to a teacher to ask who the man was. His name is Charles Bishop, was the reply. He's in coal mining, lives down at Curry. Bishop would later serve in the state Senate, chairing the powerful Rules Committee. In 1990, he actually sought the Democratic nomination for governor in a contest won by Paul Hubbard. But it was Bishop's runoff help that was instrumental in Hubbard capturing the nomination. But back to 79. When he wound down his tirade, Bishop promised Walker County teachers and citizens he was going to get with his lawyer in Birmingham the next day to settle the strike. Turned out his lawyer was Bill Baxley, the former attorney general and future lieutenant governor. Baxley purportedly told Bishop he need not try to run over Hubbard, Reed, and the AEA, and that the community best worked for a settlement. Bishop contacted business leaders, including a fellow coal company executive, and arrangements were made to secure loans for the school board. Funding guaranteed, schools opened the first week in October. Under the agreement, AEA won virtually every issue. The 42 teachers and three support workers were hired back. The board agreed to abide by the terms of the master contract. Employees would suffer no repercussions from the walkout, and the board agreed to work in good faith for a set of support worker policies similar to the teachers. The ESPO support was crucial to the strike, 
and Hubbard believes support workers' involvement amounted to a milestone in the organization's development. It was the first time support workers had really come to the fore, he says. There's no doubt in my mind that if the buses had rolled, it would have, been, it would have made the strike much more difficult to win. This was a rural county, and the kids rode the buses to school. The work stoppage ended Friday, and on Saturday morning, strikers gathered at a city park to celebrate a huge victory, which rippled across the state, helping entrench AEA as a political powerhouse. The issue of the journal, which went to press as the agreement was being hammered out, included a picture of Hubbard flanked by Head and Lee, hands together high in the air. The journal seized the opportunity to crow a little. The Walker County job action will officially go on the books as Alabama's first teacher strike. In those same record books, it will go down as a victory for employees. Ironically, Walker County schools ended the 1979-80 fiscal year with a small surplus and never actually had to draw down on the letters of credit. The strike was over a financial crisis that didn't exist. At the conclusion of the month-long strike in Walker County, Alabama, according to the AP at the time, school strikes continued to affect more than 355,000 students in nine states. More than 18,000 teachers were on strike in California, Illinois, Indiana, Louisiana, Michigan, New Jersey, New York, Ohio, and Pennsylvania. Major districts affected by walkouts included San Francisco and Indianapolis. Down in Alabama, a year later in 1980, Governor Fobb James ramped up his battle with educators with an unearmarking plan that would have devastated the Education Trust Fund. At a special delegate assembly, AEA took the unprecedented step of authorizing a statewide strike if a raise of at least 10% was not approved. Ultimately, James lost the fight to unearmark to unearmark school monies, and the educators won a significant pay raise. However, the fight for fair salaries and appropriate public school funding has continued virtually every legislative session since, and in 2023, Alabama's educators are facing a multitude of threats against their profession, their schools, and their students. So, what are some of the lessons that you know, we can draw from this struggle. First, I can't help but think that if educators in Walker County in 1979 could pull off a successful strike, so too could Alabama educators today. I mean, to be sure, there are different conditions and new challenges, but with that comes new opportunities to organize. Would the strike have been successful without the years of work involving the so-called master contract? The Washington County educators and support staff had already worked hard to organize, mobilize, and advocate in order to successfully secure school board policies that were ratified and became known as the master contract. While not collective bargaining in the legal sense, they embraced some of the spirit of collective bargaining and push the limits of what the law does allow when it comes to the so-called meet and confirm. I imagine this achievement helped lay the groundwork for the success of the strike. One of my unrealized goals in Huntsville was to secure a MOU, a Memorandum of Understanding, 
and to push the boundaries of what the law would allow in terms of negotiation over working conditions of public school employees. Educators in every school district should be considering how they too can think outside the box and push the limits to secure material achievements for their coworkers and to get it in writing. On that note, it's worth noting that the court case, the challenge that the school district brought against the strike, was not actually settled in court until 1983. Um, ultimately, the courts found that the master contract, quote-unquote, was more or less legal. Um, it was legal because the school board voted on it, ratified it, and approved it per the legal process. Now, what was thrown out was a provision in the support staff contract, which stated both parties had to agree before any changes could be made. Ultimately, the school district cannot abdicate, abdicate its authority to set and establish policy. So that was thrown out. Uh, the court case did reaffirm earlier case law that indicated Alabama public sector employees do not have collective bargaining rights unless express, expressly given those rights by new legislation. But the, the, the case law gave some flexibility uh, in recognizing that the efforts of the WCEA and the, WCO, the WCSBO were by and large legal, that they followed the law in their negotiations process. Uh, to me, it demonstrates that the law is not quite as 100% clear-cut as it's made out to be. And I take that as a challenge that in public school districts across the state, there's a lot more we could do, even within the bounds of the laws we have, which are, no doubt, insufficient and inadequate to meet the needs of our public schools. Other reflections, you know, while the AEA has always shot away from unionism, there's no doubt the 70s and the 80s were the peak of its labor militancy and arguably the peak of its political influence in Alabama. Since the end of the Paul Hubbard and Joe Reed era and the rise of the Alabama GOP supermajority, the AEA has turned even more conservative, further leaning into the, quote, professional organization service model and resisting organization of their rank-and-file membership. Meanwhile, its political strategy seems to consist of laying low and hoping to avoid right-wing ire, supplemented by extremely generous PAC donations to Republican uh, politicians. Now, given my intimate involvement in the organization, I'll admit it's hard for me to have a sober analysis but I struggle to see how today's AEA can be rightly considered a working-class organization, much less part of a broader labor movement. As Alabama's educators and students and communities face renewed threats from privatization, privatization, privatization schemes to curriculum battles, it will be up to rank-and-file educators to organize a bottom-up movement that can put forward a vision of excellent publication, public education for all students. The past decade or so has seen a revitalization of educator organizing, 
with rank-and-file movements like the Caucus of Rank-and-File Educators Corps winning power in places like Chicago and leading historic strikes. We've seen grassroots waves of walkouts hitting so-called red states like West Virginia, Kentucky, Arizona, and Oklahoma. The pandemic spurred new organizing and further revealed the inadequacy of not just our school districts and governments, but also the leadership of our education associations and unions. Dedicated education activists in cities and states across the country have paved the way for a model of rank-and-file organizing that, if carried out here, could transform public education and the political landscape in Alabama. Finally, we should reflect on the power of solidarity. The decision of the support staff to join the certified educators was pivotal, which shows the need for wall-to-wall organizing, the need to reach all employees within a worksite, regardless of your department, your title, your education, whether you have a a wall-to-wall union, separate locals within your worksite, or entirely separate unions within your worksite. There's a clear need for coordination and organization to harness the collective power of the workers. And the involvement of the UMWA members, many of them the husbands, fathers, brothers, and sons of Washington County educators, that kind of labor solidarity is immensely powerful. Would the local businessmen have been interested in trying to settle the strike if they didn't fear how this solidarity could shake up the entire community and its political economy. And of course, educators have to have strong coalitions with the students and parents they serve in order to be successful. Ultimately, the working conditions of educators are the learning conditions of students, and it's up to all of us to engage folks with this reality of the struggle. The Walker County Educator Strike of 1979 demonstrates that whether you're urban or rural, northern or southern, people power, fueled by solidarity, can make our lives and our communities better as working class people. So that's it on the Walker County Teacher Strike. Hope you guys enjoyed that. Uh, like I said, I wish there was more documentation. I wish there was more I could dive into there, but working from limited sources, uh, if you are at all interested in this story, please let me know. Please send any questions or, uh, ideas you have about it. And I do intend to do a little write-up on this for tvlr.fm. We're going to wrap up today's show with some March labor and social justice history. We're going to close by sharing some of the March anniversaries in labor history and our long fight for justice. As with every month, I compiled this information primarily from the 2022-23 edition of Planning to Change the World, a plan book for social justice educators. This excellent planner is published by the Education for Liberation Network, and I want to make sure I give them full credit Shout out as well to the Zen Education Project, which is another great source. Check out their This Day in History post on social media. And finally, to keep the list from getting even longer, I typically stick to anniversaries ending in 5 or 0. So, let's get started. 
March 1st is the first day of Women's History Month, designed to highlight women's contributions to history, society, and culture. March 3rd is the 110th anniversary of the Women's Suffrage Procession in Washington, D.C. Organized by the National American Women's Suffrage Association, NASA, thousands of women marched in front of the White House the day before President Wilson's inauguration to illustrate women's exclusion from the democratic process. The, pro the procession was carefully choreographed by Alice Paul and Lucy Burns, the newly appointed chairs of NASA's Congressional Committee, which sought to win passage of the Equal Rights Amendment, first proposed in 1878, giving women the right to vote. March 3rd is also the birthday of William Green, labor leader, politician, and AFL president who lived from 1873 to 1952. Starting out as a coal miner and an officer in the United Mine Workers of America, UMWA, Green successfully ran for the Ohio State Senate, where he introduced a model worker compensation bill and other labor-friendly legislation. He returned to the Union, becoming American Federation of Labor president from 1924 to 1952, advocating for labor management cooperation, and helping to pass the 1935 National Labor Relations Act and the Fair Labor Standards Act of 18, uh, 1938. Big day on March 3rd, because March 3rd is also the 120th anniversary of the Immigration Act of 1903, also known as the Anarchist Exclusion Act. This law restricted immigration to the U.S. based on political views and beliefs, profession, and criminal background, excluding, quote, anarchists, beggars, epileptics, and importers of prostitutes. It was enacted partly as a response to a suspected anarchist ass assassination of President McKinley, as well as the rising labor movement. The law also allowed the deportation of any immigrants within two years of entry to the U.S. based on political views, beliefs, profession, or criminal background. It was heavily used in the initial Red Scare, and unfortunately throughout the history of the labor movement and working class organizing in this country, immigration laws have always been used to bust the movement. March 4th is the 90th anniversary of Frances Perkins' appointment as Secretary of Labor. Frances Perkins was the first woman cabinet member and is considered a key architect of many of FDR's New Deal advances, including Social Security and the Fair Labor Standards Act. She was staunchly committed to social reform, implementing policies on unemployment relief and public works aimed at recovery from the Great Depression. Perkins was one of only two cabinet members to serve the entire length of Roosevelt's term in office. She resigned following his death in 1945. On March 5, 1868, the impeachment trial of President Andrew Johnson began in the Senate, with U.S. Supreme Court Chief Justice Salmon P. Chase presiding. For me, this evokes some of American history's greatest what-ifs. What if Lincoln had lived to preside over Reconstruction? What if a radical Republican had succeeded Lincoln instead of the reactionary Johnson? What we know did happen is that Reconstruction was never finished and was in fact sabotaged, the impact of which we still feel in Alabama and across the South today. 
March 6th is the 80th anniversary of Carlos Bulasan's Freedom from Want. Filipino-American novelist, poet, and labor activist Carlos Bulasan was commissioned by the Saturday Evening Post to write one of four essays it would publish on President FDR's four freedoms. Freedom of speech, freedom of worship, freedom from want, and freedom from fear. Bulasan addressed freedom from, from want from the angle of labor exploitation saying, quote, we are not really free so long as the fruit of our labor is denied us. March 8th is International Women's Day. The United Nations first observed International Women's Day on March 8th, 1975, but its history can be traced earlier. The observance emerged from the labor movement back in 1909, when the Socialist Party of America designated February 28th in honor of the 1908 garment workers' strike in New York, where women protested against unfair working conditions. Bet you didn't hear that on NPR yesterday. This year, I was able to attend a Women's Day breakfast at Athens State University that was headlined by equal pay activist Lily Ledbetter. Uh, check out tvlr.fm for more on that on the way. March 10th is the 120th anniversary of the Arkansas Streetcar Segregation Protest. The Arkansas Streetcar Segregation Act of 1903 required that separate sections of coaches on streetcars be designated for black and white passengers. A group of black leaders assembled at the First Baptist Church in Little Rock to discuss a protest and decided to call a boycott of the streetcars in Little Rock, Pine Bluff, and Hot Springs. However, despite significant decline in black ridership, the law would unfortunately remain in effect for several more decades. March 12th is the birthday of Clara Frazier, a feminist political activist living from 1923 to 1998. Frazier, who lived in Seattle, was active in a wide range of political issues. She organized strikes, advocated for abortion rights, and opposed the Vietnam War. She also co-founded and led the Freedom Socialist Party and the Radical Women, which trains women to be leaders in the movements for social and economic justice. She was a staunch advocate for workers and for the rights of minorities. March 13th is the first day of Deaf History Month, celebrating the contributions of Deaf Americans to U.S. society and culture and promoting awareness of Deaf culture in America. March 15th is the International Day Against Police Brutality. Police brutality is not limited to the United States, of course. Police worldwide have abused their power throughout their history and continue to this day. In 1997, a joint effort by the Montreal-based Collective Opposed to Police Brutality and the Switzerland-based Black Flag Group established March 15 as a day of worldwide protest against police brutality. Protests which, ironically, are often met with a brutal police response. March 16th is the 20th anniversary of the death of Rachel Corey, an American and active member of the International Solidarity Movement, ISM. Rachel Corey went to Gaza during her final year in college to protest the destruction of Palestinian homes by the Israeli government. While she was attempting to protect a Palestinian house, she was run over by a military bulldozer. Israeli sources claimed her death was an accident, but Corey's parents and other activist groups disputed the finding. March 18th 
is the 60th anniversary of Gideon v. Wainwright. Taking you back to your uh, 12th grade government class. Clarence Earl Gideon was charged with breaking and entering. Gideon could not afford a lawyer and requested that the judge appoint one for him. His request was denied, and he was convicted and sentenced to five years in prison. Gideon petitioned the U.S. Supreme Court, citing the judge's refusal to appoint, to appoint an attorney. In a landmark decision, the Supreme Court ruled that state courts must provide attorneys for those who cannot afford to hire their own. And yet, despite this historic advance, listeners of the Valley Labor Report know full well how much more needs to be done in this arena for working people to get a fair shake in the courts. Between excessive fees and fines, the high cost of legal representation, the underfunding and understaffing of public defenders, the delay tactics of the state, and more, it's obvious to me and a whole lot of us that the justice system applied to the wealthy and powerful is not the same as the justice system applied to the poor and working class. March 19th is the 20th anniversary of the invasion of Iraq by the United States and its coalition partners, primarily the United Kingdom, and opposed by much of the rest of the world. They launched an air attack on March 19th, and the ground war began the next day on March 20th. President George W. Bush justified the invasion with claims of weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, though none were ever found. Proponents of the war tried to draw connections between Saddam Hussein's Iraqi government with 9-11 and al-Qaeda, but of course it wasn't true. Very quickly in the war, Hussein went into hiding and coalition forces took control of the country. But despite the apparent victory, insurgents launched a guerrilla war with years of violence to come. The war destabilized the region and inflamed sectarian tensions with many pointing to the Iraq war and its impact as being a primary factor behind the rise of ISIS. Estimates of the war's casualties vary widely, but are at least in the six figures, if not higher. Perhaps even less understood are the long-term impacts of the war's environmental hazards and the use of chemicals like depleted uranium. This profit-fueled, reprehensible war helped to awaken me politically and many others in my generation. As with any war, it's working-class people who bear the brunt. And sadly, W. Bush gets to live out his retirement in luxury, peace, and security, while many of the war's architects grace today's op-ed pages, despite their responsibility for so much destruction. March 21st, is the United Nations International Day for the Elimination of Racial Discrimination, which commemorates the lives of the anti-apartheid demonstrators killed on March 21, 1960 in Sharpeville, South Africa. If you get out and talk to folks about their experiences, take a glance at the statistical disparities in this country. It should be easy to see we have a lot, to, we have a lot of work to do when it comes to eliminating racial discrimination. And one of the best tools that working people have to do that in our workplaces and in our economy is through the collective power of our unions. March 21st is also the 150th, excuse me, March 21st is the 50th anniversary of the Mental Patients Union in the UK. 
mental health patients organize to protect their rights and to advocate for themselves and other psychiatric patients. The movement can be, can be described as a political movement, a human rights movement, and part of the disability rights movement. The organizers saw it as a way for mental patients to fight the oppression and social control of the psychiatric community that impose sometimes terrifying treatments on unwitting patients. And a couple thoughts on this one. Uh, first, I can't help but think of one of my favorite novels, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. The movie's great, but the book is even better, and it examines some of those very same issues. Also have to recognize that mental health treatment, while it has come a long way, is far from perfect. In a profit-driven health industry, too many of our brothers and sisters are unable to receive the care that they so need. So many in our community are struggling with mental illness right now. And it's important that we look out for one another, build each other up, and help end stigmas. And bargain for mental health treatment in our contracts. The last thing I'll say on this is that while we typically talk about traditional labor unions, there's something very powerful about ordinary people coming together around their common interests and building power from the bottom up to make their lives better. Whether it's a patient's union, a labor union, a tenant's union, a student union, a debtor's union, whenever everyday people unite, our collective power can be transformational. March 22nd is World Water Day. The observance is held annually to highlight water issues and to advocate for universal access to sustainable freshwater resources, which is increasingly tenuous. Also on March 22nd, but back in 1968, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and the Community on the Move for Equality called for a march for justice and jobs in Memphis, Tennessee, in solidarity with sanitation workers who were on strike. A flyer for the march called for the use of, quote, soul force, which is peaceful, loving, courageous, yet militant. May we all have such soul force for the struggles ahead. March 23rd is the 150th anniversary of the abolition of slavery in Puerto Rico. On the show, we like to highlight the history of working people creating our own press. On that note, March 24th is the 170th anniversary of the first newspaper published by a black woman in North America. The Provincial Freeman was an abolitionist newspaper published in Canada and circulated throughout the northern U.S. The paper, which advocated for temperance, social reform, and African-American immigration to Canada, where slavery was abolished in 1833, continued publication until 1860. March 25th is the 80th anniversary of an anti-fascist strike by Dutch doctors. When the occupation Nazi regime attempted to impose a new government agency on physicians in the Netherlands, registering and following its guidelines would have meant participating in the Third Reich's program of eugenics. More than 6,200 doctors went on strike in protest. In spite of hundreds of arrests, the strike continued for weeks until the Nazis rescinded the order. Can you imagine the courage it took for these brothers to hold the line? Sticking with anti-fascist resistance, March 27th is the 90th anniversary of the Madison Square Garden protest. The American Jewish Congress assembled in New York City to call out the horrific anti-Semitism of Nazi Germany. 
approximately 23,000 people crowded into the arena, while another 30,000 listened outside. In addition to condemning the Nazi regime, they called for an American boycott of German goods. The protesters also called on President Roosevelt to loosen immigration laws to enable German Jews to enter the country. It's worth remembering that while some of America's capitalists were doing business with the Nazis, there were many people here and around the world who were opposed to that horrific regime from the very beginning. March 29th is the 50th anniversary of the withdrawal of U.S. troops from South Vietnam. Didn't plan on this being an anti-war segment, but here we are. This day marks the end of eight years of direct intervention in the Vietnam War and, of course, many more years of involvement. As many Americans became increasingly opposed to the war because of high casualties and an increased awareness of U.S. involvement in war crimes, this was an important turning point in U.S. history. Unfortunately, in the years since we've seen an effort to use these images of the frantic withdrawal from Saigon to focus on America's so-called prestige instead of an honest reckoning with empire and the bloodshot, bloodshed it breeds. March 31st is Cesar Chavez Day. This day marks the birthday of Cesar Chavez, an American farm worker, labor leader, and civil rights activist. Chavez co-founded the National Farm Workers Association, later known as the United Farm Workers of America, which achieved unprecedented gains for farm workers. As with all giants of history, his legacy gets more complicated when you scratch beneath the surface. But you can't tell the story of the American labor movement without discussing Chavez and his accomplishments. Of course, there were many, many more labor and social justice historical events to happen throughout March, too many to name. There was the exposure of COINTELPRO in 1971, something all activists should look into. There was the 1932 Hunger March against Ford, Mor Ford Motors. The Scottsboro Nine were falsely charged back in March of 31. March 1970 featured a big postal service strike the first mass work stoppage in the 195-year history of the Postal Service began with a walkout of letter carriers in Brooklyn and Manhattan who were demanding better wages. And my fellow Alabamians likely know March 1965 was a big month in the civil rights struggle, with the Selma to Montgomery March, Bloody Sunday, the murders of white activists like Viola Luizo and Reverend James Weed, and the formation of the Lowndes County Freedom Organization. My wife and I were fortunate to attend the 50th anniversary Selma Jubilee back in 2015, and still a profound experience I think about. So that's it, folks, for March Labor and Social Justice History Anniversaries, and that's it for the first episode of Shop Talk. Stay tuned to the Valley Labor Report on Saturday. Sign up for our email list at tvlr.fm, and don't forget to like, share, and subscribe. All power to the workers. Solidarity, y'all.